Amen. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, we are still glowing, uh, basking in the glow of the resurrection. We got to celebrate a couple weeks ago the beauty of Christ, the resurrected Savior. And I don't know about you, but ever since Easter, and that Good Friday and into Easter, just the reality of the resurrection just hits me every day. And the reality of what the resurrection accomplishes in my life has been affecting me from day to day. We've been talking all about the evidence for a crucified Savior, and therefore the evidence for a risen, resurrected Savior. Uh, On Easter Sunday, we saw the reason for Easter, which was an indisputable, verifiable death. This is no way can be um, challenged or argued against. There's a reality for it, and the reality of Easter is an indisputable and verifiable bodily resurrection, and our response to Easter is an intelligent and transformational belief, even as we've been looking at in Family Bible Hour. We've been asking this question, what does the resurrection change? Because if Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters. If he's still dead, then just as our brother Marty's been saying, from an atheistic worldview, from a perspective that says there is no God, there is no resurrected Savior, there is no hope for humanity, then literally all we are is walking fertilizer. We're waiting for the moment when we just turn back into dust. If Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If he hasn't been raised, just live in your sin. Live it up. Who cares? You're going to die, and nothing's going to matter when you die. You just cease to exist. Turn back into cosmic dust. Just live for yourself. But if Jesus has been raised, and he has been raised, then nothing else matters. Nothing other than Jesus Christ and his gospel matters. So we've been asking, what does the resurrection change? It changes everything. And John's going to tell us that. John tells us that in four post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that are very strategic, they each answer the question, what does the resurrection change? It's very interesting. In these four post-resurrection appearances, they all four are different ways that Jesus goes to people and presents himself and talks to them, which shows me not everyone responds to the same exact way of confrontation or encouragement. Not everyone responds to the same timing. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. So he wonderfully counsels those around him in four very strategic ways. The last time that we looked at this, we saw that the resurrection changes our relationships. Our relationship with God. We were once at enmity with God, and now we have been brought into a peaceful relationship, a reconciled right relationship with him. We can call him Father We've also had our relationship with Jesus changed. He is no longer our judge. He is our friend and he is our brother. And because we get to call him our elder brother, then we get to call each other brother and sister. We're in a family. The resurrection changes our relationship with one another. Here in the text this morning, we are going to see that the resurrection changes our relationship to the world and to the mission that we live out. The resurrection mobilizes missions. And I want us to see that very clearly in these verses. Verse 19, chapter 20, verse 19 through 23. Let's read them together. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Father, we come once again. What a privilege it is on a Lord's Day to gather, to gather around your word. We come as a family to unite around your word, to hear your voice, to sit under your counsel. God, your word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and I love that promise. Any way you swing it, it does its job. God, I pray that as I have the privilege this morning of swinging the word of God, that your spirit would do the work that I want to do but I can't do. Shepherd hearts. I pray that you would make us all look more like Jesus because of our time together this morning. You would confront our unbelief. You would confront our sin. That you would, in the words of Jeremiah, a little bit of a nuance of what he said and an adaptation of what he said, but that your word would comfort the afflicted and your word would afflict the comfortable. God, I, I know that there are many in this room that desire to live out the mission that you've given. And I pray that you would encourage those that are doing that. Maybe they don't see fruit, that you would encourage them as Jesus encouraged his disciples so many years ago. And for those that might be a little bit more inward focused, God, I pray that you would work in their hearts to show them this world, this life is not about us. It's about being on mission, your ambassadors to the world. It's about giving you the praise, the glory, the honor, do your name, and that the lamb will receive the reward of his sufferings. So Holy Spirit, be our guide. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We think of Samuel and we, we ask the exact same request that he asked. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. So speak to us, change us, conform us into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is really the theme verse in this section. As the Father sent me, so I send you. This is, has already been said by Jesus in the Gospel of John, and it's going to be said by Jesus elsewhere in other Gospels, the Great Commission texts. I'm sending you on a mission. The word in verse 21, as the Father has sent, that word sent is in a tense that does not mean I have been sent, I accomplished my work, I'm done, and now I'm giving you a work to do. It's a very specific word that Jesus is using to say there's past action that happened, but ongoing consequences because of that past action. We could say it this way. The Father sent me, and I still exist in a state of sentness, and therefore, I'm still carrying out my sent mission through you, through sending you. 
Another way to say it is the ministry of Jesus is continued through the disciples, and now it's continued through us as well. We are carrying on the mission of Christ. We don't start our own mission. The mission's already begun by Jesus, and we just carry out his mission. There's intense, tight continuity between the mission that Jesus was on and our mission because they're one and the same. This is vitally important to know because this means that our mission is not a self-sent mission. It's not self-generated. It's not self-determined. We don't determine success. We don't determine the, the methods. We don't determine the mission. It's God's mission. One of the occupational hazards of church ministry is drawing attention to self and saying, do what I'm doing. Instead of, as far as I'm doing what God's doing, do what I'm doing. But let God be your guide. Let Jesus and his mission be your guide. We don't get to make up our own mission. We have to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. It's a powerful illustration of this. In history, there was a, a violinist who, very famous violinist, um, hundreds of years ago, died, leaving behind his very famous Stradivarius violin. And it sold at an auction for over $200,000, which was astronomical price in those days. And somebody bought it. And the buyer himself was a great violinist. And he rented out a concert hall to perform on this amazing violin that he purchased. So, goes to the concert hall, theater's packed, not an empty seat, played a beautiful piece by Paganini, and the audience is completely spellbound as he's playing. This maestro is magnificent. They're hearing tones coming from the, the violin. They're hearing amazing, beautiful music. When the piece is over, the audience, as appropriate, leaps to its feet and applauds for over 10 minutes, standing ovation for 10 minutes. The maestro stands up, bows a couple times, takes the violin in hand by the neck and smashes it on a table and walks away to gasps. <gasps> what happened? Nobody really knows. Then a man came out, um, says, thank you all for coming tonight. Maestro is very thankful that you're here. He wanted to let you know that the piece that he just performed, that piece by Paganini, he just performed it on a $20 violin. You, you all thought it was the $200,000 violin. He just performed it on a $20 violin. But he's coming back, and he will perform it on the $200,000 violin. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your evening. Walks off. What's the point? The point is very clear. It's never the violin. It's always the violinist. This violinist, amazing virtuoso of a violinist, is able to take a $20 violin and make it sound like a $200,000 violin. I am, at best, a $20 violin. I simply carry out the genius of Jesus, the maestro. He picks us up $20 violins and says, let's make some music. His mission is clear. And unfortunately, we've become adept at letting secondary issues distract us from the real mission. We get into fights and arguments over secondary issues. Not that they are unimportant, 
But when we focus on those things to the neglect of the gospel, we've lost the point of our mission. What's our mission? The proclamation of the gospel, the truth of a holy God, sinful man, redemption accomplished at the cross and the resurrection, forgiveness, pardon, righteousness being put into your account, new life that will be lived in service of the king. So what's the point of this passage? All of this is introduction to say the point of these verses is that the disciples are being sent on mission by the king. But the question is, how will they do this effectively? How will you and I effectively be ambassadors of Christ Jesus? And the answer in this text is three profound provisions that are made through the resurrection. Three profound provisions given to us by the resurrection. The first is the provision of peace. This is in verse 19. The provision of peace, verses 19 through 20. So, when it was evening, so Mary Magdalene has already seen the Lord in verse 18 and came to the disciples, said, I've seen the Lord, and it's evening on that same day, the first day of the week. So this has been a, a packed Sunday for Jesus. Rose from the dead, talked to Mary, uh, rode to Emmaus. Luke 24 happens in between talking to Mary and what we're going to see this morning. Rode to Emmaus, that conversation with a guy named Clopas and um, somebody else that's unnamed, and they're walking those two disciples in Luke 24. Been a, a very busy Sunday. And you would think... Since the disciples heard from Mary Magdalene, I've seen the Lord. He's alive. I've seen him. He spoke to me, and he told me to speak to you. You would think that the disciples would not be afraid, but they are shut into their upper room. The doors were shut. Verse 19, that word shut means locked. The doors are locked. The disciples are behind the locked doors. Why? Because they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid. Jesus has been raised. He spoke to Mary Magdalene, and they're afraid. They're still in the upper room, afraid. Why? Because they have in their mind their master being crucified. And they're terrified the same fate that befell him is going to befall us. If we walk out into the streets, maybe there's going to be a, a wanted poster, wanted dead or alive. Peter, also known as the rock. Go find him. Go kill him. Wanted, dead or alive. James and John, also known as the, the sons of thunder. Maybe their wanted posters are up. Go find them. They don't want to be crucified. Here's what I want to direct your attention to. We are staring at the future leaders of the church. Terrified, behind closed and locked doors, hiding. Are you impressed by them? You shouldn't be. You should be impressed at your Savior who's going to give them power in just a few seconds. Jesus is going to show up. What's he going to do and what's he going to say? He's going to show up. What is he going to do and what is he going to say? What's he going to do? End of verse or middle of verse 19. Jesus came and stood in their midst. He came and stood in their midst. What's he going to do? He's going to show up in their midst. The doors are locked. Jesus is walking through a locked door. Looks like a ghost, acts like a ghost, but not a ghost because you can touch him and he can eat and drink, but he can walk through walls. We don't know how all that works, but that's a resurrected, glorified body. He walks through walls. There are some 
terrible attempts by people to argue this away. Two of my favorites. One, he got the locksmith to come over and unlock the door and quietly unlocked it and went, surprise, I'm here. But my favorite one is that he went into the upper room and was hiding behind a curtain or something. The disciples came in and he goes, surprise, like throwing his own surprise party. He, he didn't do that. He walks through walls. He walks through walls. What does this mean for us? It's a picture of what our glorified body is going to be. But the implication is very clear. Jesus can go anywhere that he wants to. And he can go where nobody else can go. He can reach into your heart anytime, anywhere. All of those complex layers in your life that you don't understand, that I don't understand, that nobody understands, they're all familiar territory to Christ. He knows, he sees, he knows, and he loves you. He walks in, and he's going to show them, verse 20, his hands and his side. So he's going to walk in, and he's going to show them his hands and his side. We're still talking about what he does, then we'll talk about what he says But what does he do? He walks in. He walks into their midst. He's not distant. He's not on the edge. He's right in the middle of them. And he shows them his hands and his side. Notice that he does not point to his face. He does not say, hey, remember me? You remember me. This is me. No, he points to his scars. The scars will give us the recognition of who Christ is. In heaven, we will know him by his scars. He will forever be known by his scars. He's the lamb who was slain. The wounds that he is showing to them and to us serve as the receipt of his purchase. They are the receipt of his purchase. They are showing us, I purchased you. Here's confirmation. You are mine. They're afraid And he walks right into their midst when they're afraid to help them. How many times did he come to his own in the moments that they were in distress? That's what he does. He shows up in their midst and he shows them both his hands and his side. What does he say? He does not say, my friends, the Bible says a thousand times, do not be afraid. And you guys clearly don't get that, so I'm done. He could have said, hey, remember when you guys all stuck with me at the, oh, no, that didn't happen. You guys all fled, right? It's too soon? No? Okay. He could have said, where were you? Why did you abandon me? I want answers. He could have said, you guys are just a bunch of dopes. Why did you do this to me? But instead, what does he say? And he says it twice, so it's very important. End of verse 19, middle of verse 21. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Instead of saying, how could you? Why did you? He says, peace. How precious do you think that those words would have been to these disciples? As he speaks those words, peace be with you. How precious do you think those words landed on his disciples? Peace. Not judgment, not criticism, just peace. Brothers and sisters, maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear that word from Christ afresh. 
let Jesus and his words land afresh on your hearts this morning. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He has done the work to make peace. And you can have peace. Your heart can be at peace. What does peace mean? Peace means that we are now at peace with God. We're at peace with Christ. We're at peace with one another. We're at peace with our past sins. Peace with our past sins does not mean that those sins cease to be painful. It just means those sins cease to be paralyzing. I don't know if you have a catalog of sins in your mind. You, you, could, you could just say them in an instant. These are the top 20 sins that I remember vividly that I regret with all my heart. And the pain isn't taken away immediately. But the penalty is, condemnation is gone. Those past sins that you were a part of, they can cease to be paralyzing. They may always be painful. And to a certain degree, praise God, they may always be painful because you see who you are apart from the grace of God and that his grace came into your life and set you free and has cleansed you. But if you're here this morning and you are paralyzed by past sins, your past sins have kept you from doing things, from the regret that you've experienced, from the fear of what might come, please hear Jesus speak to you this morning. Peace be with you. You have peace. Those sins don't have to be paralyzing anymore. So many people live in the paralysis of past sins and regret. Oh, to hear Jesus say these words anew and afresh this morning. This is the fulfillment of John 14, 27, when Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be fearful. I'm giving you peace. He gives us the provision of peace. Before you ever attempt to accomplish anything for God, you must be at peace with God. Don't ever try to do something for God if you are not at peace with God. Otherwise, you will try to do things in order to get that peace. This is the exact opposite of Christianity, the exact opposite. If you are trying to do things to get peace with God, then you don't have the gospel. You don't understand the gospel or you're forgetting the gospel. The gospel says Jesus did everything to give you peace. Therefore, the peace has been made and you can go with no condemnation. This is what Al Mohler said a decade ago at the Together for the Gospel conference. Every other religion in the world says, my greatest problem is outside of me and the solution to that problem is inside of me. Every religion in the world says, my greatest problem is outside of me, and the solution to that problem is inside of me. Christianity is the only religion that says, the greatest problem I have is inside of me, and the solution to that problem is outside of me. I can't solve that problem. I need somebody else to fix that problem for me. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to tell us this wonderful news, starting in verse 14. Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. That's peace with one another, that's peace with God, but specifically peace uh, through the church. And how did he establish peace with two groups of people, Jew and Gentile? How did he establish peace that way? Verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. We have peace through the spirit with the Father and with one another. We've been given peace. And if you get this right, then the things that God has called you to do will be very simple. It won't be easy, but they'll be very simple. If you realize, I'm not doing these things to get peace with God. If we have peace with God, then who can be against us if he's for us? Who can be against us? God calls us to do incredibly hard things. They're not complex. They're very hard. But if God is for us because he has made peace with us, who can be against us? We have peace with Jesus. We have peace with God the Father. We have peace with others in Christ. We have peace with our own souls as we stare at our own sins. We have peace with the world. As we go out into the world, we realize, you know what? They might hate us, but that's okay. We're at peace with that. What an amazing achievement. Now, you may be asking the question, wait a second, I thought the whole introduction to the sermon was we're on mission. How does peace relate to mission? What does peace have to do with missions? And I would tell you, everything. Before Jesus says, I'm sending you, he's going to say, let's make sure you know that you have peace. Why does he say that? Can you ever really hope to be effective in calling people to be at peace with God through the gospel if you yourself do not have peace with God? Can you ever really be effective? Can you ever really, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, go to people and say, you can have peace with God if you yourself don't really have that peace? Said another way, how many times have we just seen through the hypocrisy of somebody telling us to do something that they themselves can't do? You guys had that? Somebody says to you, you know, I want to offer you financial advice. Great, I will always take that. I'll always take financial advice. What do you got for me? Well, it's not working for me. About $200,000 in debt. Still haven't figured out a way to make it work. But I want to tell you, I've got the answer. Whoa, whoa, time out. Wait, before you tell me anything, you just told me none of this is working for you, and you expect me to pick up what you're failing at and succeed at it? Jesus says, you have peace. Therefore, go and tell others your peace is real, and you can tell others that they can have real peace. You cannot confidently offer to someone that which you confidently do not know yourself. Can you compellingly plead with people to enter into a reconciled relationship with Jesus if you haven't entered into that relationship yourself? You must know peace in order to faithfully, effectively, compellingly reach people. The resurrection secures that peace, a peace that provides courage in the face of anger and hostility. God gives us a gracious provision of peace. The second thing that God gives to us through Christ and the Spirit is a provision of power. 
We are given a provision of peace to do what God has called us us to do to be on mission. And God gives us the provision of power. This is verses 21 through 22. Jesus has said, peace be with you, end of verse 19. And when he had said this, he shows them both of his hands, his side. The disciples rejoice when they see the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. That's his mission. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the power that is being given has to be tied grammatically to the mission that's being given. If you see in verse 22, it starts with that conjunction and, a coordinating conjunction and. So what's about to happen, namely breathing on them and saying, receive the Spirit, is connected to the mission. The Father has sent me, so I send you, so take the Spirit, receive the Spirit, so that you can live out that mission. The Holy Spirit has been given so that the disciples can do in the whole world what Jesus did in Israel. And it's very clear, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, but the weird part is this breathing issue. What's up with the breathing? I get the speaking, but John tells us, before he says, receive the Spirit, Jesus goes, I mean, that's, I just imagine one of the disciples, I'm sure all of them, with rejoicing and excitement, are just, yes, he's alive, I don't care what happens, this is awesome, and one disciple's like, wait, what, what, what is happening? What, what's that supposed to do? And for all of the craziness that's made about Jesus entering the room through locked doors, even more hysteria happens over this breathing issue. It's, I really don't think it's hard. I think it's very clear. And I think it's clear with the understanding of Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, in your minds, Jesus says to his disciples right before he ascends, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. So they are not receiving the Spirit now. Though he says receive the Spirit and he breathes on them, they are not receiving the Spirit now because in Acts 1.8, he's going to say, hey, the Spirit hasn't come yet, and when the Spirit comes, you'll have power. So what's he doing? I think it's very plain to see what he's doing. If you go all the way back to John 13, Jesus did something um, that was a picture, a parable, if you will, of a reality that was happening or to come. Remember on Thursday night of the Passion Week, he washes his disciples' feet. Some people take that to introduce a third sacrament, baptism, communion, and foot washing. I would not take that to be A third sacrament, I would say it's simply acting out a parable, communicating in a symbolic way what he is about to accomplish. That's all that's happening here. He's communicating in a symbolic way, acting out a parable, and communicating in a symbolic way what he is about to accomplish. The Spirit is about to come. You're about to receive the Spirit with power. And here is just a parable, an acted out parable of what's about to happen. But there's a reality behind the parable. I think what Jesus is saying is when the Holy Spirit does come to you, please know that he is breathing new life into you. Please know that as my breath is being felt over you, 
and you're taking in my breath, so too the Holy Spirit will be felt over you and in you, and you'll receive my presence. I'm not leaving you. I'm giving you my spirit. Remember we said this earlier. I think it was a couple weeks ago. We have a new Lord's Day. We have a new day, a new holy day. It's not Sabbath anymore. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Because Jesus is making all things new. John writes out, in the beginning was the word. Those words, in the beginning, ring out in our mind the, the words, the first words of the Bible in Genesis. In the beginning, God created. John picks seven signs to show us the, the new creation that's coming. Seven days of creation, seven signs. I think John's trying to parallel that early creation account. So what is John picking up on Jesus paralleling now? The first man flesh until God breathes life into him and he becomes alive. God forms man out of the dust of the ground and breathes life into his lungs and he lives. And if this is the beginning of the new creation, a new day, a new creation, then this is Jesus giving new breath into new recreated lungs. You have a new purpose. You have new power. You have new peace. Therefore, evangelism does not have anything to do with our ability to have slick presentations or perfectly crafted arguments. Our evangelism does not have to do with that. That's what we've been learning in Family Bible Hour. It's not the ability that we have to ask that perfect question. It has everything to do with our clear and simple presentation of the gospel empowered by the Spirit. New creation, new lungs, new power. This is why if you read biographies of old dead Christians that have gone before us, you need to do it to hear the way that they speak. One of the things that you'll find, Whitfield, Spurgeon, Edwards, Martin Lloyd-Jones, they constantly say, may he grant to us, may he grant to you, may by his power it be granted to you. Not hurry up and believe. Get with the program. May God grant it to us. Why? Because without the provision of God breathing the Spirit into us and then that Spirit empowering us to go fulfill the mandate, without God doing the work, the work will never happen. So we've been given a provision of peace. We've been given a provision of power. Jesus says, peace be with you, verse 21, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he gives them a very tangible, visceral parable, acted out parable of what's about to happen in Acts chapter 1 and 2 with Pentecost and the day of Pentecost. The third provision is the provision of a perfected proclamation. The provision of a perfected proclamation. A perfected proclamation. We have a provision of peace. Peace made with God. Peace made with Jesus. Peace made with one another. Peace made with our own souls. And peace made with what's going to happen with our mission in the world. We have a provision of power through the Holy Spirit. New life. New lungs. New presence. New ability to go out with a new message that has been perfected. And that's number three. A provision of a perfected proclamation. Verse 21. Jesus says, 
As the Father has sent me, I send you. And what are we supposed to do? Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What is the disciples' mandate? What's our mandate? What's our assignment? Our assignment is to preach the forgiveness of sins, which Jesus' death and resurrection have finally made completely possible once and for all. It's a perfected proclamation. We don't have to engage in evangelism saying, I don't know, I'm not sure, I wonder, I think. No, we're his representatives. We can tell people of what Jesus has done, and when we do that, we're speaking his very words to those people. We're preaching his very truth. His very mission has become our very mission, and people will either receive it or reject it. They'll either receive and be forgiven or reject and be condemned. This is the same kind of language that's used in Matthew 18 when Jesus tells his disciples, as you interact with non-believers, as you interact with people who claim to be a believer, but by their lifestyle they are completely nullifying that profession, then you can proclaim based on what you're doing, based on your lifestyle, it's clear that you're not truly saved. And Jesus then says, what you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. What Jesus is saying is, when you make that proclamation, when you tell somebody, if you will turn from sin and trust in the work of the Savior and turn from every good work that you've ever tried to do to get to God and trust in God's work alone, and you follow him in repentance, you are saved. And somebody does that, you can proclaim that message because of Jesus' death and resurrection with assurance Notice the, the Trinity is engaged in this. Father sends the Son to do the work. Son gives the Spirit to accomplish and finish that work through us, that mission through us. We go around saying to people, your sins are forgiven because of Christ, not because of what we can do. Or if you reject this, then you retain your sins and the judgment to come for your sins. They're not forgiven. Here's the question. Are we being so ambiguous in our evangelism that nobody really knows anything? This is very clear. This is very stark. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And it's a previous. Their, their sins have already been forgiven them through the work of the cross. If you retain the sins of any, they have already been retained because Jesus knows they're going to reject Sometimes we're so concerned to not put anyone off that we, we don't really say enough. We don't say enough that could ever serve in saving someone or condemning them. Just, Jesus is my treasure. I believe that. But somebody might say, great. You live a spiritual life. I live a spiritual life. We're good to go. If we're going to be the aroma of life to life, which we want to be, we desire to be. Paul says the same message that is the aroma of life to life is the aroma of death to death to some. You can't be afraid of being an aroma of death to death. This does not mean that we go around being condemning, judgmental, mean-spirited, critically-minded, um, making accusations, just being jerks. We're not talking about being jerks. We're talking about proclaiming a message that we can hold with confident assurance and say, I know that you and I both have sins. 
I know that my sins have been paid for at the cross, and I know that your sins can be forgiven as well. And if you choose not to follow Jesus, I know that your sins, just like mine, have a consequence. My consequence, my penalty has been taken. My punishment has been paid completely. You will have to pay your punishment. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins, because unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So we don't have to go around saying, well, I think this is true. I'm, I'm, I hope it is. I'm, I'm banking on it. You bank on whatever you want. We can say, oh, this is the message of the gospel. And here's what it proclaims. And here's what I believe because of what's true in the Bible. And I plead with you, will you believe it with me? Our prerogative is not a sovereign prerogative. Our prerogative to go around and proclaim this message is not a sovereign one. We do not go around saying, I have the authority to forgive your sins. I have the authority to say, you've been judged and you're going to hell. We don't have that prerogative. We have a declarative prerogative. We don't do the forgiving. We pronounce the forgiveness. It's not my authority. It's God's authority. I have no authority. People ask me that. How's your church going? I don't have a church. It's God's church. I have no authority whatsoever over this church, this local church. I have zero authority. God is my authority. This, this book is our authority. And in so much as I am called by God to tell you what this authority says, I have authority, but I have no authority on my own. I just speak what God's word says. Same with evangelism. We just speak what God's word says. God has the sole authority. We're simply the messenger of his authority. What does this look like in action? Just turn to Acts Chapter 10, just a couple passages to see this profound provision of a perfected proclamation. We know with truth that this proclamation has been accomplished. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. This is Peter talking to Cornelius, and he says that Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's the proclamation. This is Peter speaking to Cornelius, a Gentile, and Peter says, let me tell you the truth. This is what Jesus told me to tell to you. And that's what we get to do. What a privilege to be able to be a part of God's mission in the world. Acts chapter 13, this is Paul in Antioch. Paul in Antioch, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. You've been freed because of his work at the cross. You've been freed because of his resurrection. You've been freed. So brothers and sisters, we have a message that we can go tell the world that has been accomplished. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to think. We don't have to, I'm not sure. I think this is it. We can go proclaim a perfected message, an accomplished message. So Jesus gives his disciples in the upper room and to us as well a provision of peace with God, a provision of peace with Jesus, peace with each other, peace with our own souls, in that sins have been forgiven, no condemnation, and peace with knowing what's going to happen 
as we go share this, mes- this message into the world. We've been given the provision of power through the Holy Spirit, and we've been given the provision of a perfected proclamation by the work of Jesus. We've been mobilized and empowered for mission. So let's do this. Let's go out into the world and do this. We are just being bombarded with truth from Family Bible Hour, from God's Word on Sunday mornings. We are just being bombarded by the reality of we have one mission, and we we are able to do it. We've been given every provision possible to make it happen. So let's just happen. What a sermon for these disciples to hear. Just a couple sentences make up this profound sermon from Jesus. So small, yet so profound. And we hear it this morning, so small, yet so profound. But there's a person that's missing. His name is Thomas. Thomas misses this profound sermon. And might I again tell us, it's a very bad thing not to be at church, because if you miss the profound sermons, he's going to come in and say, I don't believe any of it. But we haven't missed it. You're here this morning. You are hearing Jesus say to you, you have peace with God through the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit, God with us forever. And you have a perfected message that you know works. Go and share it in love and grace and compassion. Father, we have heard this message. We've heard these profound provisions made because of the resurrection, through the resurrection, by the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. And it changes our ability to evangelize. It changes our passion. We know that we have something in our hands, in our hearts, in our mouths that works. So God, give us opportunities this week. May may you just in your sovereign goodness, as we have heard both in Family Bible Hour and in the worship service, as we've heard messages that would encourage our hearts to just be faithful ambassadors. We have the truth, and the truth can set us free from the penalty of sin, from the penalty of death, from the fear of death, and it sets us free to live in a completely different way, sharing the gospel. So God, please, Be gracious to us to give us opportunities. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, moments that we can step into and be your missionaries. May we embrace these truths. May we treasure and cherish these truths. And may they just bleed out through us onto the people that we live next to. And God, may you receive all the glory. And may we rejoice, just like the disciples did. We've seen the resurrected Savior We've been given amazing provisions through the resurrection, and we rejoice. Father, may we rejoice now in you, our God, from whom all blessings flow. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior, through the Holy Spirit, sent by him as our seal. Amen. Let's stand together.